getting over being sick earlier in the week, and uh, I, hopefully my voice won't give out, but this will be good for you because it might get us down to the fellowship lunch earlier. I was supposed to be a good boy during the worship music, and every song that came up, I was like, ooh, I like this one, I'll sing it, but I won't sing the next one, and, and so I sang all five, and we'll see if I make it all the way through the Lord's table now. That's my bad. But uh, please turn in your Bible uh, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Ephesians 4, verse 7. Uh, over the previous generation, there's been a growing trend in the business world of putting on corporate retreats corporate team-building events. And uh, some of them, uh, in, in more recent years, there's been a growing popularity with some pretty wild ones, whitewater rafting, mountain climbing, uh, survival ex- uh, adventures. And this last week, I was reading a fascinating article about uh, survival uh, adventures that are offered as corporate retreats. And in one of these retreats, Uh, The people would uh, do a 17-mile bike ride through uh, mountain biking through treacherous mountain terrain, and then the next day they had an eight-mile trek through the blistering Nevada desert, and that that day ended with a walk over, uh, barefoot walk over hot coals. And uh, the article I was reading uh, talked about how there's some gorgeous vistas and some scenic desert sunsets, but how there's also a few uh, face plants in the uneven terrain and twisted knees and swollen ankles and a whole lot of corporate hugging and crying. And, uh, And my question is, why would a company go to the expense to send people through that? In fact, after I was done reading the article, I actually looked up this extreme survival adventure company, uh, I looked up their website um, because I was thinking about putting together a proposal before our next elder meeting for that to be our next elder retreat. I decided against it only because of how much it cost. I'm I'm sure we could all do it, but it just, the expense was a little bit much. And, And that's my question. You look at the price tag and you're like, and for a business that's trying to make a profit, this is a big price tag. Why would any company go through all that expense to put its employees through this um, physically demanding thing when the work they do together isn't like a team sport? It's in an office uh, working with their minds more than their hands. Why would they put them through the difficulty of trying to accomplish physical feats of strength together? And the answer is because, in theory, having people work together under difficult uh, circumstances forges teamwork. The idea is that it'll knit the group of people together in unity. And I actually think there's truth to that theory. I find in practice that uh, when Christians live life together uh, through the ups and downs of life over the long haul in a church family together, and they use their gifts to help one another, it does help the church grow in unity and in spiritual health. And I believe that's what Paul is going to talk to us about in the paragraph we come to in Ephesians this morning. Uh, Please turn, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 4, 7. And uh, as we prepare to read it, let me just say a few words about the context this paragraph 
comes to us in. Uh, You'll remember that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is really a two-part letter. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal. The last three chapters are primarily practical, and we're in that practical section of the letter. And the main idea of the practical section of the letter is for us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that we've been called to. And what that means practically is that we try, we aim, we make it our goal to try and live up with our lives to the privileges we've already received in the gospel. So, we're trying to make our our manner of living live up to the privileges we've received through Christ. Uh, The other picture of what it means to live in a worthy manner is that we clothe ourselves with the virtues that match the gospel message we advocate for and not with the kinds of behavior that's off-putting and clashes with the very gospel we're trying to point people to. And the first paragraph that Paul dedicates to what it means to live in a manner worthy of our calling is a whole paragraph about living in unity in the church. And that paragraph runs from chapter 4, verse 2, all the way down to verse 16. Uh, And it's about preserving the unity that the Holy Spirit has created in the church. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. It's hard enough to preserve unity when in the church you gather a very eclectic group of people that all have strong opinions. You've heard jokes about how, you know, Baptists, there's five Baptists and six opinions in the room. and It's the same thing amongst us. Uh, That can make it hard to have unity in the church when everybody has a different opinion that's a strong opinion about the issues and decisions, even just little decisions, functional decisions that a church has to make. That makes it hard. But what makes it even harder is that our sin is a threat to the unity of the church. Every single one of us is still a sinner in the middle of our own sanctification, and our sins can make us a threat to the very church family that we want to be helpful to, that we want to love on. Our sins can actually damage the unity the Holy Spirit is working uh, for the church to enjoy. And so, in His grace, God gives us three means of helping preserve unity in the church other than just repenting of our sins that could be a threat. In addition to that repentance, He gives us three means of helping preserve unity in the church. The first means is by putting on the virtues that help, uh, that help the church move towards unity. And Paul talked about those virtues in chapter 4, verse 2. Those virtues he lists are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with difficult people in love. Uh, And then the second means of preserving unity in the church is to focus on and celebrate the foundation stones of our unity. Uh, And Paul lists seven things we all share in common. We have all been brought into the common life of the church together, and we've been drawn to Christ and are now being sanctified through the same Holy Spirit. We share one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We share one faith, and the idea of faith there is the teaching of the apostles. Other verses in the New Testament call the faith that which the apostles taught. We share the same doctrine in terms of the teaching of the apostles, and we're particularly unified here at Grace Fellowship Church on what the, gospel, uh, what the apostles taught about the gospel message. We all have the same Father. We all took the same oath of allegiance to Christ in baptism. Those seven things uh, make us 
one. We all share those same seven things, and they unite us. And if we will actually value those realities, and if we'll focus on them, they do help create unity. If we keep them our main focus, instead of getting sidetracked onto other issues, it helps to maintain unity. And this morning, we're going to look at the third means that God has given us to help us preserve unity. Paul began explaining it back in verse 7, and in the middle of that explanation, he, in my opinion, he breaks off to give a defense of Christ and Christ's authority to implement this plan that is the third means that helps us preserve unity. As Lord of the church, Christ has given the church a game plan that when followed properly actually helps the church arrive at unity and is remarkable in its ability to help every member of the church grow in spiritual maturity. Uh, We're going to pick back up Paul's explanation of Christ's plan for the church. Uh, We'll start in verse 7, and I'll read all the way down to verse 16. Uh, Please follow along with me while I read. Paul says, starting in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, Scripture says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself, also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, You inspired Paul to write these words for the benefit of the Ephesian church and for us. Clearly in this section, Paul's effort is to help us understand how Jesus as Lord of the church aims to give gifts and the roles of offices in the church to help us become the body of Christ and fulfill our mission in the world. So please enlighten our eyes, enlighten the eyes of our hearts now, grant us light and understanding as we look at our destiny as a church and as individual members of the church, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are all one in Christ, and yet we've been given diverse spiritual gifts. Uh, How do these gifts function? What is the purpose of these gifts? Well, in one long, grammatically complex sentence, Paul explains the answer to those questions. And even though Paul's sentence is complex, The main point he's making with the sentence is very simple, and it's very straightforward, and it's this, that a healthy church is a growing church. Now, by growth, 
Paul doesn't mean growth in numbers necessarily. He doesn't mean growth in the number of members a church has. He also doesn't mean growth in the financial bottom line, having a growing budget as a church. No, he's speaking of the growth in holiness of the individual members of the church. He's talking about the whole church growing together in Christlikeness and holiness and obedience to the truth. What does it look like for the local church to become a place where all the members are growing together in Christ-likeness? Well, verses 11 through 16 teach us both the process and the purpose of how that happens, the process and the purpose of becoming a grown-up church. We're going to look this week at the process of becoming a grown-up church as described in verses 11 through 13. And as we look at them, I want to start by saying there's a symbiotic relationship between how an individual Christian grows and how a group of Christians grow together. And that's because we all grow together, not in isolation from each other, but together. We all grow together as we individually use our gifts to help others, and other people use their gifts to bless and help us. Uh, Let's look first at this process of church growth today, um, and, and we're going to see that the growth that Paul is talking about is brought about in two ways. First, in verse 11, God gives gifted leaders to the church for the equipping of the saints. Look again at verse 11. And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. As Lord of the church, Christ helps the church grow by giving the church gifted leaders, and Paul lists four kinds of leaders here. First, he mentions the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the glory of the risen Christ, and they were personally handpicked and chosen by Christ to lay the foundation for the early church. And you and I are still actually being fed and built up every time we open up the New Testament and read from what the apostles wrote and left us for our edification. If you have benefited at all from this sermon series through Ephesians, then the Apostle Paul himself has been a blessing to you, helping you grow and understand spiritual truth. Uh, Next, Paul mentions also prophets. More than mere pastors, prophets spoke the very words of God as revealed by God Himself. They gave supernatural revelation. And those of you who attend the Thursday night Bible study, uh, if you're attending that, you are benefiting right now uh, from the prophet Zechariah and what he has to teach us. Now, earlier in Ephesians, in this letter, Paul mentioned the prophets and apostles together in a very, very important sentence. Uh, In that context, he was speaking to Gentile Christians, and this is what he says, So then you Gentile Christians are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people and are of God's household, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are God's gift to you individually and also to us at Grace Fellowship Church. They had a foundational ministry for us. Uh, When you build a building, you only lay a foundation once, and that's the function that the prophets and apostles uh, had in this spiritual temple of God's people that the Spirit is building. 
Uh, The apostles and prophets laid the foundation for the church by teaching and guiding and protecting the early church until the New Testament was completed. And now that the New Testament was has been completed. We no longer need living apostles among us uh, because we have the text of Scripture to guide us, and yet there is a sense in which the apostles still guide us regularly when we look. There's a sense in which it's, it's as if the Apostle Paul is with us, or at least if I do my job properly, it's as if the Apostle Paul is with us because we're hearing him speak through the text that he left us in his letter to the Ephesians. And so, we're constantly looking back to the writings of the apostles and prophets and being blessed by them and built up by them as a church. Christ has also given to the church the gift of evangelists. Now, the idea of this word is that there are some people who are particularly gifted at spreading the gospel, at proclaiming the gospel. And uh, the New Testament doesn't elaborate a whole lot on the gift of these evangelists. It doesn't say a whole lot about how they function or what they do. But if you'll go and study the relevant passages where evangelists are mentioned, one interesting thing you'll find is that they didn't just function outside the church calling people to repentance and faith. They also had a function inside the church continually reminding the church of the gospel because even people who've already repented and placed their faith in Christ, we need to be reminded of the gospel and its implications regularly. And then finally, Paul mentions pastor-teachers. The grammar indicates that the two terms really describe one role, that he's not talking about pastors and teachers. He's talking about this office of pastor-teacher. Now, the word that we translate as pastor, it's just the Greek word shepherd, like a shepherd of sheep. That's the idea. Um, And there were three main tasks that every ancient shepherd had. Those tasks were to feed and protect and guide the flock. So, a pastor feeds and protects and guides the church primarily through his teaching ministry, and that includes teaching in formal and informal context, uh, both inside and outside the pulpit. That includes public teaching opportunities, but also in private conversations. Uh, That's how a pastor uh, leads and nourishes and protects and guides the church. Now, in Paul's letters, this is really important, in Paul's letters, Paul uses three interchangeable titles for the one office of leadership and teaching in the church. Those titles are pastor, elder, and overseer. And here at Grace Fellowship Church, we refer to that one office of leading and teaching most often often as the office of elder. We practice elder-led congregationalism. And biblically speaking, you could refer to me as Elder Chris. You could refer to Tycam Mark and Terry as uh, pastor so-and-so. You you could do that biblically because really pastor and elder are interchangeable terms. And you can see that in other letters Paul writes. He'll tell tell Timothy about installing uh, overseers in the church, and then he gives a whole bunch of qualifications for these overseers that he then calls elders. He uses them interchangeably. And, uh, and so, this is an opportune moment to talk about that and how important that is for us as a church. Um, I want to start by pointing out, and this is just a bad habit we have in the English-speaking church, there is no office in the New Testament of preacher, right? So, I mean, he's a preacher. Well, what do you think, preacher? You know, we, we say that. There is no office of preacher in the New Testament. Now, preaching 
is one of the most important tasks that a pastor has. It's one of, his, it's one of the more important tools in his tool bag for uh, teaching and guiding and protecting the church, but a pastor's job is more than just preaching sermons, and I think we want to emphasize that by referring to the office as pastor, overseer, elder, and not as preacher. Um, the implication of the text then is that we should view those elders who actually lead and teach well as God's gift to the church. Uh, when we, and I'll apply this with the raising up of new elders, right? I'm constantly praying about new elders for Grace Fellowship Church. I'm constantly thinking about how do we raise up new elders. Now, when we think about that, what, the way we need to think about this, if Christ is giving these elders as gifts to the church, then we go to Him in prayer and we're referential to Him because He's the one who gives them as gifts, and we're keeping our eyes up to see who those gifts might be. In other words, I don't make a man, I don't like choose a man from the congregation and make him into an elder because I have a little training program I came up with for elders. I do actually have a training program. But, that, but I, the point is, I didn't make anybody an elder. And let, let me use just two examples. I'll use these, I'll apply them. So, two wonderful gifts to our church and to me personally that God has given. When, when I came to first start being a pastor, uh, Ty and Cam were here, and they have been really helpful uh, in uh, leading and guiding and teaching in the church along with me. Together, as a team, we do this, and they have blessed me. Uh, but since I've came, we raised up Mark and Terry. Okay, well, I didn't raise up Mark I didn't take Terry through a training program and then make him an elder. First of all, as an elder board, we were looking at who these people might be. You as a congregation affirmed them when we put their names forward. But if you look at the development of Mark and Terry into gifted, qualified elders, our church had very little to do with that. When they arrived here and walked through the door the first Sunday, they were already mostly the finished product right? And so, that's the way we think about elders. It's not so much, of course, we want to have our eyes up. We want to try and uh, disciple people and raise up the next generation of elders. But as we think about this, we need to remind ourselves, this is not so much up to us. This is about Christ giving good leaders to the church, and we need to go to Him in prayer, asking Him in His kindness to give us these good gifts. Uh, and so, uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, uh, they're all gifted leaders Christ has given, and He means them as gifts for the church. But for what purpose? What, pur what purpose do they have? Uh, to what end has He given these gifts? We'll look at verse 12. He's given them for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So, in addition to giving the church gifted leaders, Christ also has given to the church gifted saints to do the work of ministry. Now, that, word, that term saint, it just means holy one, a person who's holy. That's the Greek idea. And Paul is using it here to designate every true Christian. Every true Christian has been called to be holy as our heavenly Father is holy. We've been given new hearts. We've been born again. We've been given the Spirit to help us. And so, I think it's right that he refers to Christians as holy ones. And every holy one has been given gifts. I can prove that to you, actually, in verse 7. In fact, before we go there, though, let me just say this. What you have in verse 12, verse 12 communicates two great responsibilities in the church. First, 
It is the responsibility of pastor teachers using the revelation given to us by the apostles and prophets to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And uh, elders are not above doing service with our hands and not just teaching. We're not above service, and every single one, single one of the elders here, we do service behind the scenes, but we're aware that our primary ministry is equipping the body by giving good, diligent leadership and sound teaching. But it is also the responsibility of every member of the body to participate in the building up of the body through using their spiritual gifts. And every member of the body has been given a gift. I can prove that to you. Verse 7. Look back at verse 7. Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, The Greek word we translate as grace in verse 7 is charis, and it's very closely related to the word the rest of the New Testament uses to speak of spiritual gifts. Taken in context, it literally means a grace gift. To each one of us, Christ gave a grace gift, a gift that finds uh, finds its explanation in His grace to us. And what Paul is doing here is this is Paul's way of referring to spiritual gifts. And if you connect verse 7 with verse 12, it becomes clear that every member of the body of Christ has been given spiritual gifts that they are to use for the service and benefit of other Christians. What exactly is a spiritual gifts, uh, a spiritual gift, and how would you discover what your gifting is? Well, my favorite definition of spiritual gifts is this one. A spiritual gift is a unique capacity for service given to every true Christian that they did not possess before salvation. A unique capacity for service given to every Christian that they did not possess before salvation. Uh, Let me elaborate on that for a moment. You might be very mechanically gifted and inclined, and having come to Christ as an adult, uh, you've now become willing uh, to use uh, your mechanically inclined nature to help fix things and to help people around the church or maybe even people in need to go to their home and to help them uh, And now that you're a Christian. Well, as we look at that, we wouldn't say that you've been given the spiritual gift of being mechanically inclined. But the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12 has a name for that. It would call it the gift of helps. That whereas before, uh, your mechanical inclination led you to kind of pursue uh, satisfying your own curiosity, and you actually didn't use it that often for the benefit of others, now you're willing to give up your free time sacrificially to go troubleshoot and fix things for others uh, because you enjoy doing that. And we would call that the gift of helps. And so, the question is, how do you discover your spiritual gift? Well, I would like to submit to you, there are three just, these are just common sense ways that I think you can go about discovering your spiritual gift. First of all, you can pray. Uh, Pray for the Holy Spirit to show you not only your gift, but how you can best employ it. When it comes to the spiritual gifts, God is not playing hide and seek. He wants you to know what your gift is. He wants you to be able to use it for the common good. Second, Study what the Apostle Paul says about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, I had planned originally to take you to Romans 12, but for the sake of my voice, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Uh, if, but let me say just a couple things about those two passages. If you go to those two passages and you put them together, what you'll find is that Paul lists 
18 different spiritual gifts. Now, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that four of those gifts were miraculous sign gifts given during the early generations of the church that are no longer existent. So, we think that 12 of those gifts are still in use. And maybe I could describe those gifts to you. Maybe I could use the illustration of painting to describe it. If you've ever done any oil painting or you've, or you've taken a class in painting, you know that there are three primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. And none of those three colors can be mixed from other colors, but if you have those three colors, you can mix uh, any, uh, you can create any color in the entire range of color and tone. Every other color and shade can be created by mixing those three primary colors. Well, if you can make every color in the rainbow out of those, imagine what God can do with 12 primary gifts as He gives each Christian a blend of multiple spiritual gifts. I don't think it's correct biblically to think of it as only being given one gift. Every Christian is a blend of different gifts, uh, and the main goal is to find out what your primary gifting is. And so, you need to study to educate yourself on what those gifts are. Another place that's helpful, maybe another way we could think about it is, in 1 Peter, Peter alludes to the gifts, but he doesn't elaborate on them. And in just one verse, he basically breaks the gifts down into two categories. And the categories are speaking gifts and service gifts. And I think that's another helpful way to break the gifts down. If you take the 18 Paul mentions, you could easily break them down into speaking gifts and into serving gifts. So, study what the New Testament says about gifts. And then third, you need to discover your spiritual gift uh, by serving in your local church. Volunteer. Uh, serve others in both formal and informal ways. The spiritual gifts are experimental. By that, I mean you actually have to get out and try them. You have to get out and do them. And I think what you'll find if you work at it is that over time, you'll, you'll discover what your gifting is. And often, what you're gifted at is something that you're particularly good at and something else that you enjoy. And usually, the, the church body will affirm you in that, in that gifting. So, work to discover what your gifts are. Um, now, concerning these spiritual gifts that every member of the body of Christ has, I want to say two things about how they function among us. First, it is the responsibility of every Christian to discover what their gifting is and to use it for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. On the ship of the church, there are no passengers. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody has work to contribute, which means, secondly, that being a member of a church is to serve in an office. Now, here's what I mean by that. Our church constitution refers to the elders and deacons of Grace Fellowship as the officers of the church, and the reason that language is in there, the reason the word officer is in there, it's actually a legal reason as a religious nonprofit that has nothing to do with what the New Testament says. But my point is this, you could read through our constitution and get the mistaken notion that the only people who have offices at Grace Fellowship are the elders and the deacons. But in actual fact, in the New Testament, 
being a member of a local church is to serve in an office. And you know that any office you serve in in life comes with responsibilities. It usually comes with a job description that's pretty clear-cut and straightforward. And so, if what I'm uh, advocating here is correct, what is the job description of a member of a church if being a member is an office? Well, you have two things to guide you. One is simply using your gift, right? It would be your responsibility to use your gift. And then number two, the second thing that guides you are the one another commands of the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's these one another commands. The most oft-repeated one another command is to love one another. But it's commands like love one another, bear one another's burdens, bear up with and tolerate those who are difficult in love. Uh, That would fill out your job description. So, the main idea of being in an office, the office of membership, is to use your gifts in the church by serving and to try to live out the one another commands. But I would submit to you that being a member of a church is to hold an office in the church just as much as being an elder or a deacon. So, Christ has created a game plan by which every member of the church grows spiritually. It's a two-part plan. He's given gifted leaders to equip the saints for service. He's given gifted saints who who each have a blend of giftedness. Uh, He's given them as gifts to the church for the building up of the rest of the body. And the question then becomes, what does this process then result in? What does this game plan, if we follow it, result in? Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ has instituted a process by which the church grows. And in verse 13, we see three outcomes of what this game plan produces. The first is that it produces spiritual unity, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, knowledge of the Son of God, I think that's very straightforward. The faith, as Paul is using the word faith here, uh, it refers to the teachings of the apostles, what the apostles taught. And what's really interesting about verse 13 is this. Back when we were in verse 3, I claimed that that verse is the the key verse in understanding the whole paragraph, and that the point of the paragraph is to preserve the unity the Holy Spirit has created in the church. But what we see now in verse 13 is that even though there's a unity the Spirit's created that we need to preserve, there is also a unity of faith that we are to attain to. There is a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God that we haven't quite arrived at yet, but that we need to be seeking to grow in. Jude speaks of the faith this way in his letter, "'Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints.'" The faith is the body of Christian truth rightly understood and wisely applied. It's the body of doctrinal convictions that should grow up out of the soil of personal devotion to Christ. And so, maybe you could picture it this way. Picture it like a, like a triangle with uh, the base of the triangle being perfectly horizontal, and at the top of the triangle is true knowledge of the Son of God and also a proper understanding of what the apostles taught and practiced. And every single Christian in our church is in their spiritual journey, they're somewhere on one of those perpendicular sides of the triangle, but as we all grow 
uh, closer to understanding the true knowledge of the Son of God, as we all grow closer to understanding what the apostles taught and then being doers of what the apostle taught, this amazing thing happens. We grow in proximity to one another. We grow closer in unity with one another. Uh, So, that's the first result. The second result of this game plan is that we all attain to a mature man. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says it this way, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, I think Paul, in that verse, is saying something very profound, but it's something that gets lost on us as Americans, and here's the reason why. Each and every one of us has been hopelessly romanticized. We have been romanticized by our poetry and by our, uh, by our novels and by our movies, and I will have to say, as someone who's been romanticized myself, I didn't hate the process. I like it. I like the romantic poets. I actually feel kind of guilty for liking them when I read the Bible. But um, we've all been romanticized. And what is one of the marks of romanticism? One of the marks of, and and one of the many marks of the romantic uh, movement artistically is this. We portray childhood as a season of innocence and wonder and beauty. And what happens is our portrayals of childhood in art are very sanitized and very edited. And the result is that if we tell a story where a child is a main character, they actually act very adult-like in our stories, right? They're not slaves to their passions. They're not slaves to their desires. They usually aren't foolish. They usually are the wise one in the story because they're the protagonist. Um, And yet, the Bible doesn't portray childhood that way. The Bible portrays childhood as a phase in life that everybody goes through that we should want to grow up out of, not return back to. And often in Scriptures, childhood is portrayed as a time where people are very selfish, self-focused, where people are naive, where people can't meet their own needs effectively and are a burden to others instead of being someone who can meet their own needs and help others who are in need. And the goal here is that we all become grown-up Christians. We don't want to stay baby Christians. There's nothing romantic there's nothing good that comes out of staying a baby Christian. You want to grow up into maturity, and the, the measure of our maturity is being like Christ, becoming like our Lord Jesus Christ. The third result of every member using their spiritual gifts is conformity. I know conformity as a title. Conformity has a, it has a bad connotation in our culture, but my, my point is this, that we conform to the good image of Christ. We conform to the moral image of who Jesus is, how He lived, and what He taught. So, then the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He, the entire body derives its life from Him. It's governed by Him. And then He also becomes the goal that each of us aim at. We want to become like Him so that we reflect His moral image. Now, at this point, I also want to make sure I point out one very important word in verse 13. It is the word all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Uh, Christianity is a religion, it's a movement, and there are many other competing religions and philosophic movements out there in the world. 
And when you compare what Christianity is supposed to be with what those other movements are and do, one of the things you'll find is this. Not every religion and movement takes good care of its rank and file members. Some other movements, some other religions, are willing to sacrifice their members if that's what it takes to accomplish the mission. They're willing to throw their members under the bus if it'll help their, uh, if it's perceived as helping their movement get ahead. There are some movements that could care less how their members are progressing as long as the ship is moving in the right direction. But the difference in Christianity is this. We care about every member of our group growing from the newest private to the oldest general among us. Uh, From the front of the army to the rear of the army, we want everyone to be growing in Christ-likeness. We want everybody to understand the arguments and implications of the gospel message. We want every member to become more mature in Christ. That's our goal. And so, this is Christ's plan for the church. He wants us to become a grown-up church, and He wants each of us individually to become grown-up Christians. And that happens through gifted leaders equipping the saints, but it also happens through those saints doing the work of ministry. The result then is that we all grow up together, not in isolation from one another, but all together into Christ's likeness. So now that we've understood the flow of the passage, allow me to give just a couple of exhortations. Uh, I've become aware recently that every now and then, Sometimes there are other pastors and elders from other churches that listen to my recorded sermons. And so I give this exhortation for myself and for uh, Terry and Mark and Cam and Ty, and also for any other pastors or elders who listen in on this recorded message. Uh, I would say this to you, brother elder, I don't deserve to be a part of God's family let alone be a pastor. It is a privilege to be a pastor. And I think the same could be said for you. You don't deserve to be part of the family of God, let alone have the joy of being an elder and an overseer. And as we execute our office as elders, uh, the Apostle Peter gives us some really important instructions about the spirit about how we go about our work. He says this in, uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and following. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over the flock allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Brother elder, are you leading the church voluntarily, according to the will of God, with eagerness, and in a way that proves to be an example to the flock? Are you leading, as Paul exhorts those who are gifted to lead in Romans 12, are you leading with diligence? And for those of you who don't serve as pastor, elder, overseers, are you meaningfully involved as a member of the local church? Uh, Are you using your spiritual gift? Can you identify what your spiritual gift is, and are you using it? It is true that the church is a place that we come for worship and fellowship with others and to be taught God's Word, uh, to sing songs, uh, to, to enjoy doing corporate worship together as we do congregational singing. All of that is absolutely true. But the church is also a place where we come 
to serve. That's also in the equation. I'm concerned that um, in contemporary evangelicalism, people view the church as a place to come and sing songs and have a worship experience and be taught, and maybe even as like a resource center where I'm taught about the things of Christ. But we need to see the church also as a place of service. The church is where you use your spiritual gifts. Are you using them? What are you doing to serve and build up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's pray.